0: And thanks for listening.
1: This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Many large corporations dedicate huge budgets to their image, selling the story they want the public to take in. Fossil fuel companies are some of the biggest spenders.
2: When you actually peel back uh, the glossy advertisements and messaging from the industry, the real numbers show that um, practically they're spending more on burnishing their image than they actually are changing their business
1: plans. For years, fossil fuel companies have claimed to support climate science and policy. Many have recently pledged to hit net-zero emissions by mid-century. Yet behind the scenes, they fight those very same policies through industry associations, shadow groups, and lobbying. All while spending vast sums on advertising and PR campaigns touting their climate commitments. This week we're looking at some of the entities that help these companies slow the transition away from fossil fuels starting with public relations and law firms. Many of these groups are now facing their own pressure to drop their fossil fuel clients. First, let's get some historical perspective. Climate One's Ariana Brocious takes it from here.
0: Dr. Benjamin Franta has a PhD in applied physics and is also a PhD candidate in history at Stanford. Through years of research, he and others have uncovered just how long fossil fuel companies have known their products could hurt the climate, and how long they avoided telling anyone about it. Franta found one key example of this from more than 60 years ago in a Delaware archive.
3: It was a speech given by Edward Teller, the famous physicist who worked on the hydrogen bomb, and he was giving a speech to an industry audience. It was um, a special conference put on by the American Petroleum Institute in 1959, and he warned them about the eventuality of global warming from fossil fuels and that that energy supply, that fossil fuels would have to be replaced. Franta
0: says in the subsequent decades, the industry's understanding of the climate impacts of fossil fuels only continued to grow.
3: And by the early 1980s, the industry had a very sophisticated understanding of the issue. We now have internal reports from companies like Exxon from that time that predict very accurately how global warming would develop, many of the impacts, and also had a clear understanding that the central problem causing it was fossil fuels and that fossil fuels would need to be replaced to stop the problem from developing. Around that time, and I'm talking about the early 1980s, even the late 1970s, scientists studying this problem And companies like Exxon were aware of the fact that if climate change was going to be avoided, it was time to act then.
0: This understanding wasn't limited to U.S. companies, though some of them were leaders in hiding the facts. Instead of taking action on climate, companies did the opposite.
3: Exxon deserves special mention because it had a quite advanced understanding of the issue. And it was a leader in the industry in coordinating the whole industry's response to climate legislation and climate treaties, and in particular in trying to obstruct them and block them. In the mid 1980s, Exxon informed many of the other oil companies about this issue, and essentially raised a red flag for them and said, we're going to be regulated as an industry because of this climate problem. And we as an industry need to be prepared and have a counter-response ready to deal with climate legislation and climate treaties.
0: Franta says throughout the 1980s, French company Total and others followed the strategies developed by Exxon to dispute and counter climate science.
3: These included things like emphasizing the cost of climate action and de-emphasizing the benefits of climate action and even distraction techniques, which might surprise you, things like emphasizing the need for reforestation or efficiency. Like these are things that alone would be good, but they were deployed by the industry in order to distract attention away from fossil fuels. And they've been doing it ever since.
0: In the late 90s and early 2000s, the industry started to reposition itself as integral to solving climate change.
3: That's when the industry really began promoting things like carbon capture, things like hydrogen, and almost all hydrogen is, is made from natural gas, is, is made from fossil fuel, currently at least, but basically promoting industry-friendly solutions to climate change that really, at least so far, have not really been solutions, but have continued to perpetuate the fossil fuel regime.
0: Those tactics included shifting the blame to the public by popularizing the idea of an individual carbon footprint and personal sustainability. What size is your carbon footprint?
2: Ah, the carbon footprint's the... That I don't know.
4: Whatever it is, the whole population of the world make that a very, very big number.
3: There are ad campaigns from the early 2000s that portray climate change as the fault of individual consumers. Um, and encourages them to do things like carpool more or change their light bulbs and portrays the fossil fuel companies as the leaders. And it was even worse because in reality, those fossil fuel companies were not in fact taking the lead to address climate change. They weren't investing substantially in renewables, for example.
0: Another frequent tactic of fossil fuel companies has been the use of so-called advertorials in major newspapers like the New York Times, often a full-page ad written in the form of an op-ed.
3: So it's made to look authoritative and and neutral or objective, but in reality it's paid for by, you know, in this case a company like Exxon. And Exxon took these out, you know, for many, many years in the New York Times and used them to cast doubt on climate science, but also to convince the public that climate action would be too expensive to undertake, that it would hurt the economy. And in fact, sometimes Exxon would cite studies by economists that said this, but those economists had actually been paid to do those studies by the oil industry. So there was a lot of trickery involved. and. You know, these were messages seen by huge numbers of people because they're in these mainstream, incredible, authoritative newspapers like, like the New York Times. The New York Times still runs these sorts of ads for fossil fuel companies. And many of those ads still contain false and misleading statements like calling natural gas clean or exaggerating the amount of investment in renewables that the oil companies are making. And that, of course, skews all of our perceptions of what these companies are doing. And in a way, that New York Times stamp of approval on that ad, it's a form of the third party technique. It's people who might not necessarily trust Exxon, but they might trust the New York Times. And so they see it in the New York Times and they believe that message.
0: These tactics, especially the economic arguments, have also been targeted at politicians, policymakers, and business leaders.
3: I saw then-President Trump give his announcement to pull the U.S. out of the Paris Agreement. And to justify that, he cited an economic study paid for by the industry and written by some of the very same economists who have been doing this for the industry since the 90s. And so, this strategy is still going on. Um, it's still affecting public policy at the highest levels. And, you know, we need more oversight of that. We, we need to know, understand that whole phenomenon better, you know, because the future is at stake.
0: In recent years, Franta says the fossil fuel industry has shifted to more greenwashing or climate washing techniques, often through social media.
3: ExxonMobil is growing algae for biofuels could one day power planes, propel ships, and fuel trucks, and cut their greenhouse gas emissions in half. We see this all the time now with major oil companies. ExxonMobil might be bragging about how much carbon capture it's doing, but if you actually run the numbers, it's minuscule. You know, So they, they sort of specialize in giving a narrowly true fact, that is presented in an overall misleading way. So it's it's sort of a sin of omission or a sin of presentation.
0: But there's growing public awareness of this greenwashing, which Franta says is one of the first steps to combating it.
3: Because if the public is aware of the trickery, then the trickery doesn't work as well. But also, this is unlawful often uh, to to deceive the public in this way about your company or about About your products. And so different parties can bring climate lawsuits uh, that focus on greenwashing and try to put an end to it. And you know, we've seen some suits like this in the United States. And we've seen suits like this in other countries in uh, Europe, for example. And I think we're going to see a lot of these kinds of lawsuits as companies make climate pledges, as they try to green their images as they make net zero commitments that might not actually have anything behind them, that's gonna be an important accountability mechanism to ensure that what these companies say they're doing or portraying themselves as doing, that they're actually doing that and not just, not just trying to look good. So it's a very, very important legal campaign, global in scope. And the stakes are very high, of course, because it's going to to affect the long, long long-term future of the planet.
1: Dr. Benjamin Franta has a PhD in applied physics and is also a PhD candidate in history at Stanford University. Coming up, a former PR executive on the misleading messages from fossil fuel clients.
4: There are advertising ideas that they're far more socially and environmentally responsible than they are in reality. Um, Ideas that we can't live without them, that it's dangerous to imagine a future free from fossil fuels, and ideas that just generally confuse people about climate change and what the real solutions are.
1: That's up next when Climate One continues.
3: Hey, everyone. I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate.
1: we are talking about the firms that enable fossil fuel companies to maintain their social license to operate. I've invited three guests to weigh in. Christine Arena is former executive vice president at Edelman and founder of the production company Generous Films. Catherine Lindstrom is sustainability editor at Adweek. And Jamie Henn is founder and director of Clean Creatives, a project for PR and ad professionals who want a safe climate future. Companies spend a lot of money on advertising and messaging in order to appear more climate conscious. ExxonMobil is the latest big oil company to announce that it aims to achieve net-zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. But Exxon's plans only cover Scope 1 and Scope 2 emissions, meaning it won't cover its biggest carbon impact, consumers burning the fossil fuel that it generates. Those are called Scope 3 emissions. I asked Christina Arena what she thinks about net zero pledges from fossil fuel producers.
4: Well, I think, you know, the fact that practically none of them, to your point, include scope three emissions. Um, They don't factor in the actual emissions generated when people use their products, Um, is a little bit deceptive. I think that at the very least, these marketers need to include the fine print so that people understand that scope one and two emissions basically mean bringing fossil fuels to market more efficiently, Um, not decarbonizing our economy, not scaling back on the emissions that scientists say we need to Focus on.
1: Catherine, uh, how much advertising and PR money are companies putting towards these net zero and other climate oriented campaigns? What's the scale of the spend here?
5: That's a good question. I would love to know the specific numbers on this, but I haven't been able to dig that up. They're pretty cagey, especially PR companies, on um, how the money moves around. But I think the fact that these big PR firms are keeping oil and gas companies on their client roster, despite a lot of really negative press, really bad PR for these PR companies. I think that shows that it's a big chunk of their revenue.
1: Many large oil and gas companies say they support our price on carbon pollution, yet the House Oversight Committee reports that less than half of 1% of their lobbying effort over the past decade focused on carbon pricing. The committee also reports that from 2010 to 2018, BP spent about 2% of its capital expenditures, or CapEx, on low-carbon investments. Exxon spent less than a quarter of 1% on cleaner energy, large oil companies are spending pennies on carbon pricing policies and low carbon energy. I've asked executives in the past to specify their CapEx on renewables, and they dance around the actual number. Jamie, what story do those numbers tell about capital expenditures and lobbying?
2: Well, I think it tells a story that big oil's supposed commitment to climate action is little more than greenwashing. ExxonMobil just made record profits uh, because of high gas prices. And what are they doing with it? They are telling their shareholders that they are going to increase oil and gas production, and they're doing a ten billion dollar stock buyback to reward their shareholders. Uh, in comparison, ExxonMobil has spent, you know, maybe upwards of about three hundred million dollars on algae research, which over the last ten years, so that's about you know, 30 million a year, maybe. Yet that's the uh, focus of all of their advertising is all about how they're making fuel out of algae uh, and things like that. So again, when you actually peel back uh, the glossy advertisements and messaging from the industry, the real numbers show that um, practically they're spending more on burnishing their image than they actually are changing their business plans.
1: Catherine, some high-profile podcasts like The Daily came under fire recently for oil company ads that aired during the International Climate Summit in Glasgow, touting the company's efforts for carbon capture, et cetera. Uh, There was questions about whether and how the New York Times fact checks those ads. It's logical that these companies want to go reach popular and influential audiences, but what do you think about the trend toward moving to more advertising into newer media spaces?
5: Yeah, I mean, I think it makes sense, right? From a strategy standpoint, you have a bunch of young people who maybe are a little bit skeptical of fossil fuel companies, maybe care more about the climate, maybe are kind of hesitant to even start driving. Gen Zers aren't like driving as at the same rates as previous generations. So that's kind of a problem for oil and gas companies. They need to reach those folks and they need to advertise where those people are. It's just a question of whether those ads align with the policies of the platforms that are, that are giving them space.
1: Christine, there's a line from a Guardian article about this that stands out. It says, quote, oil companies almost never advertise their products, opting instead to advertise ideas, particularly the idea that they're working hard to address the climate crisis, end quote. Give us a sense of how PR firms work with fossil fuel clients on messaging and the relationship of their product versus making people feel they're on the same side
4: fossil fuel marketers are basically bombarding us with their messages, doing very aggressive media buys across channels, right? So if you have logged into Twitter, Facebook, the New York Times, Politico, or listened to a a podcast recently, chances are you've probably heard a fossil fuel ad. Um, and, And really, if you look at the nature of those very, very pervasive ad messages, you're right. They're not really selling us products, they're advertising ideas. They're advertising ideas that they're far more socially and environmentally responsible than they are in reality, Um, ideas that we can't live without them, that it's dangerous to imagine a future free from fossil fuels, Um, and ideas that just generally confuse people about climate change and what the real solutions are. So I think this is a very dangerous mix, this mix of misleading messages from fossil fuel marketers amplified so aggressively across media channels. This is a systemic issue. And it's an issue that is a serious problem because fossil fuel marketers aren't restricted the same way tobacco or opioid marketers are. And they're spending vast resources. So their agency partners are turning around and creating these Messages and plat- programs, and social and ad platforms, are themselves not incentivized to police misinformation or police the problem. So this is a systemic issue. And to your question, you know, what is that role that that PR partners play? Well, you know, they're, they basically take the client's money and execute um, messaging that fits the objective of that client. The objective of most fossil fuel ads is you know, to do one of two things, either you know, um, it's not to transition us away from clean energy anytime soon. The agenda and the messaging is designed to keep f- the demand for fossil fuel products up and to avoid regulatory intervention. And that's why they're trying so hard to influence public opinion and reaching out so aggressively.
1: And so, what is the possible avenue for regulatory intervention? We obviously we have, you know, First Amendment, et cetera, uh, regulating free speech, very contentious. Is there a path for oversight by a government entity?
4: There is, and if you look at uh, opioids or tobacco, they provide models. Um, you know, fossil fuel products kill 8.7 million people a year through pollution. If you compare those numbers to fatalities in tobacco, you know, tobacco products kill about 480,000 people a year. Opioids, I think deaths from opioids are at about 70,000 a year. So why aren't fossil fuel marketers restricted in the same way that tobacco marketers are? There are clearly mechanisms for this level of intervention. It just hasn't happened yet. And that is partly thanks to the power of the fossil fuel lobby.
1: Jamie, you lead Clean Creatives, a campaign pressuring public relations and advertising agencies to quit working with fossil fuel companies to spread climate disinformation. In January, your group joined with more than 450 scientists who signed a letter calling on advertising and PR agencies to drop their fossil fuel clients. What was the impact and what are you trying to achieve?
2: Well, I think the impact of that letter really showed that this is a topic that PR and advertising agencies can no longer avoid. Um, You know, I think the role of PR and advertising in blocking climate action has been hiding in plain sight uh, for years because it's the water we swim in every day. It's the messages and the advertisements that create the reality and the very language that we use to talk about the climate crisis. Um, And as we've seen over the last few decades, uh, these industries have played a huge role in blocking the type of conversation that we need to have about climate climate change, and then the type of political action that could result from that. So about a year ago, uh, my colleague and friend Duncan Meisel and I were looking out there and actually seeing all of this advertising out there that was flowing um, during the uh, 2020 election um, and feeling like there had to be a way that we could begin to try and uh, dismantle or at the very least throw a wrench into the gears of this propaganda machine. And so we launched Clean Creatives as an effort to really go after the PR and ad agencies that work most closely with the fossil fuel industry. The idea being that ExxonMobil, you know, their business plan really depends on selling oil. But a firm like Edelman or WPP, they can make money doing all sorts of things. They could work with sustainability-oriented clients. They could work with really big companies like GM, uh, which you know doesn't have a perfect track record, but is making the transition to electric vehicles and trying to move into this clean energy economy. So the idea was that these were really essential agencies that were a part of the way the fossil fuel industry blocked progress, but they were also movable targets who we could really bring on to the right side of this issue and tap into the incredible talent that exists in the creative sector. And instead of using that to destroy creation, try and get those creatives to actually help address the climate crisis.
1: Well, Porter Novelli is a PR firm that dropped a client. Tell us that story.
2: Right. So early on, we were uh, working with the writer Bill McKibben to put out kind of the first piece about the campaign that he was writing for The New Yorker. And the case study that we were zeroing in on was the uh, firm Porter Novelli, which is a storied PR firm that dates back you know, into the last century. And they'd been working with the American Public Gas Association, which is the leading lobby group for the natural gas industry. And Porter Novelli had helped them develop a campaign called Gas Genius, which was targeting, quote, woke millennials and gen z and it was a lot of photos of people grilling fish tacos on their open gas flame and working with chef influencers on instagram to talk about how they would only cook with natural gas Um, and we were going to really take them to task for this campaign it had nothing about the risks of uh natural gas and methane emissions, nothing about the health risks of having gas stows in your homes, et cetera. And when we got in touch with them to kind of fact check the piece and talk to them about the issue, they said, here, wait a second, we'll give us a couple of weeks and we'll get back to you. Um, and lo and behold, to their credit, they came back and said, "You know, look, we're no longer going to work with this uh, gas association because, quote, it is no longer compatible with our commitment to environmental justice. Um, and I think that was really telling, both that they brought up the environment but also social justice. We have seen a reckoning in the advertising space around Black Lives Matter, around racial justice issues. Um, We're hoping that they extend that conversation to really look at climate justice and the climate crisis as well. Now, I'll put a little caveat on this story to say that We are not exactly sure that Porter Novelli has followed through on their commitment to not do any more work with fossil fuel clients, so we'll keep digging into that. But it is a good sign that this campaign can move some really large firms and hopefully reshape the industry as a whole.
1: Catherine, PR firms are hired to predict and create trends. Climate disruption is a trend that's accelerating. How much is fossil fuel a dividing line between the old guard and the new guard among people working in these agencies?
5: I mean, I think that it's only starting to become that. Um, I think it's, I think, you know, we talked a little bit already about the comparison to tobacco. And I think it does, it works well in this, the one thinking about these PR and ad agencies, because that really did become kind of a moral bellwether for agencies um, in the 90s. And I think since then, you know, like if, I mean, I, I talked to one, advertiser who worked at an ad agency, a really big ad agency in Chicago. And when she was hired, they asked her, would you be willing to work on a tobacco account? And she had to like really struggle with herself, eventually did say, no, I wouldn't do that. They hired her anyways, though. And then they just put her on different accounts. So I think we're getting there with fossil fuels
1: we hear elsewhere in this episode about an effort to uh, in the law field to you know associate or disclose what law firms are doing business with uh, fossil fuel companies and that's very much targeted at law school students who are recruited by top firms and whether they want to work for firms that are representing fossil fuel companies coming out of law school Christine as a former VP at Edelman how much do you think this kind of outside pressure has shifted their business model in December the New York Times reported on an internal meeting during which Edelman's CEO, Richard Edelman, said the company would not walk away from fossil fuel clients, adding that Edelman's services are needed by the energy industry as it transitions. So, what's your response to that?
4: Well, I didn't expect Edelman to walk away from very lucrative client contracts. I mean, we know that between 2008 and 2018, Edelman did about a half a billion dollars worth of work for, that's just trade associations, fossil fuel trade associations, including the American Petroleum Institute, the American Fuel and Petrochemical Manufacturers, National Mining Association, and others. So Edelman has different practices and the energy practice is extremely lucrative. So I don't expect them to divest. But what I do expect is for them to continue to be a primary target for lawmakers. And that's not just because of activist campaigns or my personal experience, but it's because there is real evidence showing how PR firms have played that central role in promoting uh, misinformation on behalf of fossil fuel clients. I do suspect that that the focus and scrutiny on this industry will will increase, not decrease. I am concerned that um, the industry is just really unwilling to acknowledge the core problem of misleading communications. PR firms just haven't wanted to talk about this, despite the fact that there's an ongoing congressional investigation into climate disinformation. There are 13 active AG, state AG lawsuits that center on that basis of of misleading communications and advertising. So I just think this is a conversation the industry needs to have much more openly and it needs to take actions to stop damaging uh, potentially communities through misleading marketing communications.
1: We invited Edelman to join this discussion and they declined. Our invitation is still open and hope they'll come on. Coming up, law firms also do a lot to protect fossil fuel companies and slow the transition to clean energy.
6: The narrative that like everyone deserves representation and that, you know, fossil fuel industry deserves the still deserves the best kind of representation. Why is that? Fossil fuel industry has so many resources.
1: That's up next when Climate 1 continues. Let's get back to my conversation about PR agencies and the fossil fuel story with Catherine Lindstrom, sustainability editor at Adweek, Jamie Henn, founder of the Clean Creatives campaign, and Christine Arena, former executive vice president at Edelman. Chevron is hiring journalists to work in an internal quote newsroom to cover stories it doesn't think mainstream outlets will write about. I asked Jamie Henn if it was possible that oil companies could bring these messaging functions in-house and thus mitigate the need to work with outside PR firms or ad agencies.
2: Well, I think you are seeing that uh, from a variety of different fossil fuel companies. It's a real concern. Um, and obviously, Chevron's been engaged in a fight for years over in Richmond, California, um, which is the largest point source. Their refinery there is the largest point source of pollution in the entire state of California and had a devastating impact on the local community with their air pollution. And yeah, Chevron started not only hired its own journalists, they started their entire own newspaper uh, to try and put out their own spin on the news uh, about local issues in Richmond. Um And of course, accompanied that with a major political campaign to try and take over the Richmond City Council. I think thanks to the work of grassroots communities there, uh, activists and community members were really able to push back on that. And that is where the hope lies. And I think people are a little bit sharper consumers these days. And when they see stuff that looks so clearly like propaganda, they're able to push back on that. I think the bigger risk is when actually a fossil fuel company isn't. Putting forward outright climate denial, but they're actually talking about solutions um, when they pretend to be our friend. Um, that's the harder stuff to really cut through. But ultimately, it's just as damaging because the goal of that content is to delay the type of public outrage and ultimately political pressure that could cause these companies to really change. And so, in some ways, I'm less worried about Chevron uh, coming out there and really pushing back on regulations. I'm more worried about them pretending that they're big fans of climate action when, in fact, they're lobbying behind the Scenes um, to block regulations everywhere, from the local level all the way up to the international.
1: Yeah, these days everyone agrees on decarbonization and net zero. This it's a, the debate's really about how fast is whether it take decades or <laughs> centuries or or happen on the timeline that science wants.
2: Well, and I think I think that's really critical because we've we've had the conversation with a lot of advertisers who we've talked to about signing our pledge, and they say, "Hold on a second, you know, we're working with BP or Shell." all about their climate solutions and how much they care about the issue. So we're helping, we're helping the transition happen by putting out advertising from BP about how committed they are to climate action. And I think the thing to understand is that that is exactly the tactics that an industry under pressure would do, right? You know, they want to act as if they're solving the problem. They want to pretend as if they're making progress so that they won't face the type of pressure and regulations that would cause them to really change. And so that advertising that's quote unquote helping is actually even more damaging. And I think that that's hard for people to hear because it is a beautiful ad about how committed BP is to climate action. But when only a few percentage points of their capital expenditures are going to clean energy and the rest is being poured into fossil fuels, that ultimately is false advertising. And it should be called out as such and ultimately regulated as such.
1: Let's look to the other side, Christine. The, the clean energy sector is growing quickly, but it's a small amount and it's fragmented compared to fossil fuels. They don't spend as much on advertising. They don't have the mega national consumer brands that happen that we know from the oil companies, although car companies are starting to advertise EVs more. You know, look at that side of it. Is there, where's the power and the brand power and spending power on the clean side? Because ultimately, these firms will move when there's money to be made by these other clients.
4: Well, yes. I mean, you know, look, the fossil fuel industry is unique in that they have an exorbitant amount of money to spend. It's just a huge industry and it clean tech marketers can't match that scale at this level. But what they can do is uh, command the narrative. Uh, fossil fuel marketers even though their messages are so pervasive, even though so they're so aggressive about telling their story and trying to position themselves as part of the solution, uh, people are losing faith in fossil fuel companies. Uh, we have about 60% of Americans right now saying that fossil fuel, believing that fossil fuel companies are to blame for the climate crisis and about 50% of them want them to pay damages. Um, and that's now, I think that's only gonna increase. So. This industry is kind of losing control of the narrative, even though it is trying so hard to direct it. Um, And so I think that opens the door for clean tech marketers and clean energy marketers to come in with a more compelling narrative. Tell your story better, be more creative, capture America's hearts and minds. I think that's the open opportunity. Um, you can't go up against Goliath and beat Goliath on you know muscle because we can't outspin Goliath, but we can certainly outtalk him.
1: Jamie, how do you see the power dynamics there of this sort of less mature, more fragmented, less wealthy, clean energy sector compared to these fossil giants who've been around and had 100 years to accumulate power and brand?
2: Well, I think Christine put it exactly right. I mean, there's no doubt that right now the oil and gas sector is dramatically outspending clean energy when it comes to PR and advertising. Um, We did a report to launch the Clean Creatives campaign that looked at some data that we had available. And this was between 2014 and 2018, which there's a lag time because it's hard, as Catherine mentioned, to get this information from advertisers at certain points. But during that period, what we could find suggested that uh, the fossil fuel industry had spent over a billion Dollars over the course of just five years to influence public opinion on these issues. Um, And that outweighed clean energy by a factor of 400 to 1. So there's just no competition between the two. That said, I think Christine's exactly right that this is changing. And there's a few reasons why. One, Everybody knows that this is where the future is headed. And if advertising and PR is about anything, it's about trends, it's about predicting the market, driving the market. And everybody's clear that the market is moving away from fossil fuels to clean energy. Um, Second, those are the companies that people want to work with. If you go to the main PR and advertising agencies around the country and around the world, hardly any of them put their fossil fuel clients on their website. And if you're not proud enough to put your client on the website, maybe you shouldn't be working with them. Um, This isn't work that people are happy about or proud about or that is attracting talent and winning awards. It's kind of the dirty secret that maybe keeps the lights on. So that's saying something about where the industry is going. And finally, it's not just clean energy companies that are part of this new economy or have something at stake in this conversation. It's also huge consumer-facing brands that are trying to convince their consumers that they're committed to sustainability and want to be part of a more sustainable economy. So if I'm a brand like Unilever, and I'm trying to convince my consumers that I care about the climate, I care about the environment, do I really want to work with an advertising agency that is also working with ExxonMobil? to block climate action, to put out propaganda about my product, that just increases the type of distrust that is destructive to brands. And so I think that conversation is one that we're really trying to have with major companies that might not be involved in clean energy, but do have a stake in this conversation to say, hey, just like you take a really close look at your supply chain to figure out whether or not the products you're sourcing are sustainable, Take a close look at your advertising firm and ask them if they're working with clients that are really um, aren't aligned with the mission and the values that you're trying to put out there in the world. And I think that's beginning to happen. I think, again, this has been a sort of you know sector that's avoided the type of scrutiny, um, perhaps not surprisingly, because they're very good <laughs> at shaping public narrative. Um, but it's something that's beginning to really take effect. And I think a conversation that's only going to expand in the years to come.
1: So as we as we wrap up, what's the next chapter in this, Christine? What do you, what do you think the next turn will be that you're looking for or trying to make happen?
4: The next term is, I think, you know, accountability. Um, I think we're seeing a wave of accountability journalism. I think we're going to probably see some PR firms and executives specifically called as witnesses to. Testify at the uh, oversight, the House hearings on climate disinformation. I also think that we'll probably see a lot of activity on the state level. Um, Those lawsuits, the state AG lawsuits filed against oil firms for their deceptive advertising, I think that we'll see some of the marketing partners named as defendants in some of those suits. And I think we're going to continue to see this wave of public interest um, and curiosity about this issue because climate change is something that everyone listening and everyone in the world um, is experiencing on some level.
1: Jamie, Martin Sorrell is one of the gods of the advertising industry. He's made some moves recently. What does that tell you about the way the winds are blowing in PR and marketing?
2: Well, I think it's a good sign, and and for those who don't know, uh, Martin Sorrell was the one of the early kind of leaders and founders of WPP, which has emerged as one of the largest advertising firms in the world. And he's now started a new company, and uh, one of the first steps he took was to sign the Amazon Climate Pledge and say that his agency was really going to focus on this. Um, Since then, the details have been a little scant about what exactly that means. So there's some accountability work that needs to be done there. But the point is that this is clearly where. The market is headed. You are not going to be an advertising agency in 2030 and not have a position on climate change. There is a parallel with big tobacco here, however imperfect. And I think people need to look at themselves and ask: Would I have been proud of working for Philip Morris to block action to address cancer from cigarettes? You know, would I wanted to have been on the account that put out the lies about that? Um, and if the answer is no, then you. Better ask some serious questions about the work you're doing for the fossil fuel industry right now, because the level of anger that people feel towards those companies today is only going to magnify as the impacts of climate change become more clear. We need those creative minds um, working for uh, the good guys instead of putting out propaganda for Exxon.
1: Our thanks to Christine, Jamie and Catherine. Thank you so much for coming on Climate One. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Law firms help fossil fuel companies limit their legal liabilities, and they've also come under recent scrutiny for that work. The group Law Students for Climate Accountability grew out of a desire by law students to bring more scrutiny to their future employers, particularly those who shield the fossil fuel industry. They released their first climate scorecard in 2020. Arianna Brocious spoke with Mikaela Anan, a research coordinator for Law Students for Climate Accountability and a law student at UC Davis.
0: Your group released its second report in 2021, grading major law firms on their climate change work and specifically looking at their litigation, lobbying and transaction work for clients. What were your key findings last year?
6: Uh, Well, uh, they were quite similar to the previous year, um, which are that the top 100 law firms, which we call the Vault 100 firms or big law, are significantly contributing to furthering issues within our climate, uh, as opposed to mitigating those issues, which we as students and as future legal professionals hope that they would be moving towards. So our climate scores go from A to F, um, and also the potential for an A plus, Should should a law firm take the climate pledge that we have as well as not represent any of the fossil fuel companies in the work that they do, So, so far, we don't have any of those on that list, but we saw that because we changed our metrics just a bit to not have like a zero sum of renewable energy work canceling out the fossil fuel work, that a lot of the firms who were performing maybe at a B level or a C level even
0: moved down uh, in rank. And so how did you grade firms? You mentioned renewable energy work not negating Working for fossil fuel clients, what was the criteria that you used?
6: Mm -hmm. So each of the um, scores, so A to F, has its own criteria for a grade. And for A scores across litigation, transaction, and lobbying, we did factor in the renewable energy just so that we had something that could distinguish um, from a B score and below. But there had to be no cases or transactional work or lobbying for the fossil fuel industry, and then a little bit of work for the renewable industry. Um, for B cases, or for B uh, firms, rather, there was no cases that either mitigate or exacerbate climate change. So that is predominantly work for fossil fuel industries. And then C through F, there's a number range. So for, for litigation, it could be one to two cases, three to seven cases, um, depending on which, which letter grade. And for transactions, it would be the dollar amount that, that they would be receiving from a firm
0: and lobbying the same same kind of metric. Firms are highly attuned to the values and preferences of graduates from top law schools who are their future leaders. So how much of the, your intended impact is focused on that talent pipeline and sort of providing information to them?
6: I'd say a lot of it is focused on, on the students. And we know that a lot of students have do have choice and others might be have less availability of options to, to choose, whether they have financial barriers um, or they, they just don't have as much access. Um, and that's something that we, we recognize. And we don't want to feel like students should feel shamed about their decisions, but they should be well informed about them. I think part of the intention of the scorecard is just to say, here's something that you should know when you're making these decisions. Beyond the
0: responses from the firms themselves, what's been the impact of the report?
6: We've been heartened by uh, folks who've reached out. So, you know, really grateful for, for your outreach as well. Um, but just to kind of lift up this this work, we know that structurally we're playing a role that we've seen in other areas, right? So like the banking sector and financing projects for the fossil fuel industry um, and who's financing coal and, and fossil fuels or the advertising agency is seeing more of a frontal call out. And so we kind of just are nested in part of a lar- larger ecosystem that's trying to take away the social license of the fossil fuel industry. So within that, we've had outreach from particular firms. We've had outreach from students as well who are able to say, I saw the scorecard and it was really helpful in me making a decision, or I saw a scorecard and I want to do something similar. I want to localize this information. I want to know how I can kind of get an impact that I can reach the students at my school, or I've been working with a particular community who's having an issue, how can we kind of leverage that? So I think that's been, been huge. And then we've also had outreach from various organizations uh, that we've been able to kind of try to learn from and be in partnership with around the work that they're already doing about environmental justice in particular. And so those are kind of building and budding relationships that we want to continue to build so that we are better informed and positioned and like in right relationship with the work that's already going on in so many areas.
0: Won't there always be smart and talented lawyers willing to defend polluters and oil companies as we see, you know, for other other actors? Yeah, that's the unfortunate
6: thing that we just want to call to task, honestly, Um, because what we've noted in the legal industry is that there tends to be this negating of um, responsibility, right? So even the narrative that like everyone deserves representation and that, you know, fossil fuel industry deserves the, still deserves the best kind of representation. Why is that? Fossil fuel industry has so many resources. These big law firms have so many resources as well. We already know that they're highly well-paid, highly funded, and they are good at what they do. Otherwise, (laughs) the same issues wouldn't be continuing, right? So I think that it should create a bit of pause um, to think we don't have to move in the same kinds of ways. There are other areas that, again, um, these big law firms will tout their pro bono work and say, look how good we are in these particular areas, but at the same time still continue to work with these fossil fuel industries that have so many resources and in-house lawyers often that they don't really need this kind of legal counsel that has a dozen big law firms within one set of litigation, right? This also is like serves as kind of like an intimidation factor even against communities from being able to call out these industries. So imagine being somebody who their community is being polluted by or has a negative impact of a, a fossil fuel industry, and they know that the, these well-resourced law firms are going to put their all behind the fossil fuel industry. How does a community move back, push back against that? A law firm has
0: to think about those things. Michaela Anang is a research coordinator for Law Students for Climate Accountability and a law student at UC Davis. Thank you so much for joining us on Climate One thanks so much for having me
1: in developing this episode on professions that have promoted the fossil fuel narrative i thought about academia our universities enabling fossil fuel companies to shape the story in a more subtle and less visible way than the pr firms we explore in this episode columbia and stanford for example are starting interdisciplinary schools focused on climate and sustainability that's exciting because addressing the climate emergency calls for new holistic approaches, drawing on all dimensions of our being and all parts of universities chemistry, sociology, psychology, politics, communications. Climate changes everything we do and learn. But then I wondered how these two startup schools would be funded. Would they accept money from the very companies that for decades have spent huge amounts of money on delaying policies, such as a carbon price? researched and developed at America's top universities. So I asked. Columbia, my alma mater, referred me to its statement announcing its endowment would divest from fossil fuel stocks. The university did not respond to my question about program funding from oil and gas companies. Columbia's energy program does list funders that include the world's largest oil companies. Think about that for a minute. Columbia doesn't want to profit from fossil fuel companies but it's perfectly comfortable starting a climate school that runs on oil and gas money. Several years ago, Stanford professor Mark Jacobson said on Climate One that the university's acceptance of $100 million from ExxonMobil in part compromised its energy research. In response to my recent query, a Stanford spokeswoman said the transition to net-zero carbon energy is expensive and will benefit from funding from energy companies. She added that energy companies can play an important role in scaling new solutions developed at Stanford. On the investment side, Stanford divested from coal around the time that most U.S. coal companies were going bankrupt. And while Harvard, Dartmouth, Georgetown, and other prestigious universities have committed to fully divesting their endowments from all fossil fuels, Stanford has yet to do so. Corporate influence on campus, of course, is not confined to the energy industry. In 2003, Derek Bach, then president of Harvard, wrote a book, Universities in the Marketplace, the Commercialization of Higher Education. He argued that universities are jeopardizing their fundamental mission and their eagerness to make money by agreeing to more and more compromises with basic academic values. I fear the stakes of that corrosion are even higher now, as universities navigate away from fossil fuels to more sustainable and just ways of powering our economy. Lastly, I think it's fair to admit that these issues are complicated and changing. Years ago, Climate One did accept funding for major oil companies. We no longer do, and we won't in the future. Climate One's empowering conversations connect all aspects of the climate emergency. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on Apple or wherever you get your pods. Talking about climate can be hard, complicated, difficult, depressing, but it's also critical to address the climate emergency. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review. It really does help advance the climate conversation. Brad Marshland is our senior producer. Our producers and audio editors are Aaron Ambrosius and Austin Cologne. Our audio engineer is Arnav Gupta. Our team also includes Steve Fox and Tyler Reed. Our theme music was composed by George Young and arranged by Matt Wilcox. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.